0: Section 15 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brendan Hodge. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell, Section 15 in seventeen fifty he came forth in the character for which he was eminently qualified a majestic teacher of moral and religious wisdom the vehicle which he chose was that of a periodical paper which he knew had been upon former occasions employed with great success the Tatler, spectator and guardian were the last of the kind published in england which had stood the test of a long trial and such an interval had now passed since their publication as made him justly think that to many of his readers This form of instruction would, in some degree, have the advantage of novelty. A few days before the first of his essays came out, there started another competitor for fame in the same form, under the title of The Tattler Revived, which I believe was Born But to Die. Johnson was, I think, not very happy in the choice of his title, The Rambler, which certainly is not suited to a series of grave and moral discourses which the Italians have literally, but ludicrously, translated by Il Vagabondo, and which has been lately assumed as the denomination of a vehicle of licentious tales, the Rambler's Magazine. He gave Sir Joshua Reynolds the following account of its getting this name. What must be done, sir, will be done. When I was to begin publishing that paper, I was at a loss how to name it i sat down at night upon my bedside and resolved that i would not go to sleep till i had fixed its title the rambler seemed the best that occurred and i took it note i have heard dr wharton mention that he was at mr robert dodsley's with the late mr moore and several of his friends considering what should be the name of the periodical paper which moore had undertaken garrick proposed the salad which by a curious coincidence was afterwards applied to himself by Goldsmith. Our garricks a salad, for in him we see oil, vinegar, sugar, and saltness agree. At last, the company having separated, without anything of which they approved having been offered, Dodsley himself thought of the world. End of note. With what devout and conscientious sentiments this paper was undertaken is evidenced by the following prayer, which he composed and offered up on the occasion. Almighty God, the giver of all good things, without whose help all labor is ineffectual, and without whose grace all wisdom is folly, grant, I beseech thee, that in this undertaking thy Holy Spirit may not be withheld from me, but that I may promote thy glory and the salvation of myself and others. Grant this, O Lord, for the sake of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The first paper of the Rambler was published on Tuesday the 20th of March, 1750, and its author was enabled to continue it, without interruption, every Tuesday and Friday, till Saturday the 17th of March, 1752, on which day it closed. This is a strong confirmation of the truth of a remark of his, which I have had occasion to quote elsewhere, that, A man may write at any time, if he will set himself doggedly to it. For, notwithstanding his constitutional indolence, his depression of spirits, and his labor in carrying on his dictionary, he answered the stated calls of the press twice a week from the stores of his mind during all that time, having received no assistance except four billets in number ten by Miss Mulsoe, now Mrs. Chapon, number thirty by Mrs. Catherine Talbot, number ninety seven by Mr. Samuel Richardson, whom he describes in an introductory note as an author who has enlarged the knowledge of human nature and taught the passions to move at the command of virtue and numbers forty four and one hundred by mrs elizabeth carter posterity will be astonished when they are told upon the authority of johnson himself that many of these discourses which we should suppose had been laboured with all slow attention of literary leisure were written in haste as the moment pressed without even being read over by him before they were printed It can be accounted for only in this way, that by reading and meditation, and a very close inspection of life, he had accumulated a great fund of miscellaneous knowledge, which, by a peculiar promptitude of mind, was ever ready at his call, and which he had constantly accustomed himself to clothe in the most apt and energetic expression. Sir Joshua Reynolds once asked him by what means he had attained this extraordinary accuracy and flow of language. He told him that he had early laid it down as a fixed rule to do his best on every occasion, and in every company, to impart whatever he knew in the most forcible language he could put it in, and that by constant practice, and never suffering any careless expressions to escape him, or attempting to deliver his thoughts without arranging them in the clearest manner, it had become habitual to him. Yet he was not altogether unprepared as a periodical writer, for I have in my possession a small duodecimal volume, in which he has written, in the form of mister Locke's commonplace book, a variety of hints for essays on different subjects. He is marked upon the first blank leaf of it, to the hundred and twenty eighth page, Collections for the Rambler. And in another place, in fifty two, there were seventeen provided. In ninety seven, twenty one. In one hundred ninety, twenty five. At a subsequent period, probably after the work was finished, he added, In all Taken of provided materials, 30. Sir John Hawkins, who is unlucky upon all occasions, tells us that this method of accumulating intelligence had been practiced by Mr. Addison, and is humorously described in one of the spectators, wherein he feigns to have dropped his paper of Notanda, consisting of a diverting medley of broken sentences and loose hints, which he tells us he had collected and meant to make use of much of the same kind is Johnson's adversaria. But the truth is that there is no resemblance at all between them. Addison's note was a fiction, in which unconnected fragments of his lucubrations were purposely jumbled together in as odd a manner as he could, in order to produce a laughable effect, whereas Johnson's abbreviations are all distinct, and applicable to each subject of which the head is mentioned. For instance, there is the following specimen. Youth's entry, etc. Baxter's account of things in which he had changed his mind as he grew up. Voluminous. No wonder. If every man was to tell or mark on how many subjects he has changed, it would make volumes, but the changes not always observed by man's self. From pleasure to business to quiet. From thoughtfulness to reflection to piety. From dissipation to domestication by imperceptible gradations but the change is certain dia non progrende progresse conspicamus look back consider what is thought at some distant period hope predominant in youth mind not willingly indulges unpleasing thoughts the world lies all enamelled before him as a distant prospect sun guilt inequalities only found by coming on it love Is to be all joy, children excellent, fame to be constant, caresses of the great, applauses of the learned, smiles of beauty, fear of disgrace, bashfulness, finds things of less importance, miscarriages forgot like excellencies, if remembered of no import, danger of sinking into negligence of reputation, lest the fear of disgrace destroy activity, confidence in himself, Long tract of life before him. No thought of sickness. Embarrassment of affairs. Distraction of family. Public calamities. No sense of the prevalence of bad habits. Negligent of time. Ready to undertake. Careless to pursue. All changed by time. Confidence of others. Unsuspecting as unexperienced. Imagining himself secure against neglect never imagines they will venture to treat him ill ready to trust expecting to be trusted convinced by time of selfishness the meanness the cowardice the treachery of men youth ambitious as thinking honours easy to be had different kinds of praise pursued at different periods of the gay in youth danger of hurt etc despised of the fancy in manhood Ambitious, stocks, bargains, of the wise and sober in age, seriousness, formality, maxims, but general, only of the rich, otherwise ages happy. But, at last, everything referred to riches. No having fame, honor, influence, without subjection to caprice. Horace. Hard it would be if men entered life with the same views with which they leave it, or left it as they enter it. No hope, no undertaking, no regard to benevolence, no fear of disgrace, etc. Youth to be taught the piety of age, age to retain the honor of youth. This, it will be observed, is the sketch for number one ninety six of the Rambler. I shall gratify my readers with another specimen. Confederacies difficult. Why? Seldom in war a match for single persons, nor in peace. Therefore, kings make themselves absolute. Confederacies in learning. Every great work, the work of one. Three. Oui. Scholars' friendship like ladies. Scribbabamus, etc. Marshal, the apple of discord. The laurel of discord. The poverty of criticism. Swift's opinion of the power of six geniuses united. That union scarce possible. His remarks just. Man a social, not steady nature. Drawn to man by words repelled by passions. Orb drawn by attraction. Repelled by centrifugal. Common danger unites by crushing other passions, but they return. Quality hinders compliance. Superiority produces insolence and envy. Too much regard in each to private interest. Too little. The mischiefs of private and exclusive societies. The fitness of social attraction diffused through the whole. Mischiefs of too partial love of our country. Contradiction of moral duties. Greek, oi philoi on philus. Each man moves upon his own center, and therefore repels others from too near a contact, though he may comply with some general laws. Of confederacy with superiors, everyone knows the inconvenience. With equals, no authority. Every man his own opinion, his own interest. Man and wife, hardly united. Scarce ever without children. Computation. If two to one against two, how many against five? If confederacies were easily, useless. Many oppresses many. If possible, only to some, dangerous. Principium amicitias. Here we see the embryo of number 45 of the adventurer, and it is a confirmation of what I shall presently have occasion to mention, that the papers in that collection marked T., were written by Johnson. This scanty preparation of materials will not, however, much diminish our wonder at the extraordinary fertility of his mind, for the proportion which they bear to the number of essays which he wrote is very small, and it is remarkable that those for which he had made no preparation are as rich and highly fashioned as those for which the hints were lying by him. It is also to be observed that the papers formed from his hints Are worked up with such strength and elegance that we almost lose sight of the hints which become like drops in the bucket indeed in several instances he has made a very slender use of them so that many of them remain still unapplied note sir john hawkins has selected from this little collection of materials what he calls the rudiments of two of the papers of the rambler but he has not been able to read the manuscript distinctly thus he writes page two sixty six sailors fate any mansion whereas the original is sailors life my aversion he has also transcribed the unappropriated hints on writers for bread in which he deciphers these notable passages one in latin fatui non fame instead of fami non fame johnson having in his mind what thuanus says of the learned german antiquary and linguist Zylander who he tells us lived in such poverty that he was supposed fami non fame scribere and another in french de gente de fat et a fame a argent instead of de goûte de fame an old word for renumer, et a fame d'argent the manuscript being written in an exceedingly small hand it is indeed very hard to read but it would have been better to have left blanks than to write nonsense. End of note. As the Rambler was entirely the work of one man, there was, of course, such a uniformity in its texture as very much to exclude the charm of variety, and the grave and often solemn cast of thinking, which distinguished it from other periodical papers, made it, for some time, not generally liked. So slowly did this excellent work, of which twelve editions have now issued from the press, gain upon the world at large that even in the closing number the author says i have never been much a favorite of the public yet very soon after its commencement there were who felt and acknowledged its uncommon excellence verses in its praise appeared in the newspapers and the editor of the gentleman's magazine mentions in october his having received several letters to the same purpose from the learned the student or oxford and cambridge miscellany in which mr bonnell thornton and mr coleman were the principal writers describes it as a work that exceeds anything of the kind ever published in this kingdom some of the spectators excepted if indeed they may be accepted and afterwards may the public favours crown his merits and may not the english under the auspicious reign of george the second neglect a man who had he lived in the first century would have been one of the greatest favourites of augustus this flattery of the monarch had no effect it is too well known that the second george never was an augustus to learning or genius johnson told me with an amiable fondness a little pleasing circumstance relative to this work mrs johnson in whose judgment and taste he had great confidence said to him after a few numbers of the rambler had come out i thought very well of you before but i did not imagine you could have written anything equal to this distant praise from whatever quarter is not so delightful as that of a wife whom a man loves and esteems her approbation may be said to come home to his bosom and being so near its effect is most sensible and permanent Mr. James Elphinstone, who has since published various works, and who was ever esteemed by Johnson as a worthy man, happened to be in Scotland while the Rambler was coming out in single papers at London. With a laudable zeal at once for the improvement of his countrymen and the reputation of his friend, he suggested and took the charge of an edition of those essays at Edinburgh, which followed progressively the London publication. The following letter, written at this time, though not dated, Will show how much pleased johnson was with this publication and what kindness and regard he had for mr elphinstone to mr james elphinstone no date dear sir i cannot but confess the failures of my correspondence but hope the same regard which you express for me on every other occasion will incline you to forgive me i am often very often ill and when i am well am obliged to work, and, indeed, have never much used myself to punctuality. You are, however, not to make unkind inferences when I forbear to reply to your kindness, for be assured, I never receive a letter from you without great pleasure and a very warm sense of your generosity and friendship, which I heartily blame myself for not cultivating with more care. In this, as in many other cases, I go wrong, in opposition to conviction for I think scarce any temporal good equally to be desired with the regard and familiarity of worthy men. I hope we shall be some time nearer to each other and have a more ready way of pouring out our hearts. I am glad that you will find encouragement to proceed in your publication and shall beg the favor of six more volumes to add to my former six when you can. With any convenience, send them me. Please to present a set in my name, to Mr. Rudderman, of whom I hear that his learning is not his highest excellence. I have transcribed the mottos and returned them, I hope not too late, of which I think many were very happily performed. Mr. Cave has put the last in the magazine, number 631, in which I think he did well. I beg of you to write soon, and to write often, and to write long letters, which I hope in time to repay you, but you must be a patient creditor have, however, this of gratitude that I think of you with regard when I do not, perhaps, give the proofs which I ought of being sir, your most obliged and most humble servant Samuel Johnson this year he wrote to the same gentleman another letter upon a mournful occasion to Mr. James Elphinstone September the 25th 1750 dear sir "'You have, as I find by every kind of evidence, lost an excellent mother, "'and I hope you will not think me incapable of partaking of your grief. "'I have a mother, now eighty-two years of age, whom, therefore, I must soon lose, "'unless it please God that she rather should mourn for me. "'I read the letters in which you relate your mother's death to Mrs. Strahan, "'and I think I do myself honour when I tell you that I read them with tears.' But tears are neither to you nor to me of any further use when once the tribute of nature has been paid. The business of life summons us away from useless grief and calls us to exercise of those virtues of which we are lamenting our deprivation. The greatest benefit which one friend can confer upon another is to guard and excite and elevate his virtues. This your mother will still perform if you diligently preserve the memory of her life and of her death, a life, so far as I can learn, useful, wise, and innocent, and a death resigned, peaceful, and holy. I cannot forbear to mention that neither reason nor revelation denies you to hope that you may increase her happiness by obeying her precepts, and that she may, in her present state, look with pleasure upon every act of virtue to which her instructions or example have contributed. Whether this be more than a pleasing dream, or just an opinion of separate spirits, is, indeed, of no great importance to us, when we consider ourselves as acting under the eye of God. Yet, surely, there is something pleasing in the belief that our separation from those whom we love is merely corporeal, And it may be a great incitement to virtuous friendship, if it can be made probable, that that union which has received the divine approbation shall continue to eternity. There is one expedient by which you may, to some degree, continue her presence. If you write down minutely what you remember of her from your earliest years, you will read it with great pleasure, and receive from it many hints of soothing recollection, when time shall remove her yet farther from you and your grief shall be matured to veneration. To this, however painful for the present, I cannot but advise you, as to a source of comfort and satisfaction in that time to come. For all comfort and all satisfaction is sincerely wished you by, dear sir, your most obliged, most obedient, and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson. The Rambler has increased in fame as an age, soon after its first folio edition was concluded it was published in six duodecimal volumes and its author lived to see ten numerous editions of it in london besides those of ireland and scotland i profess myself to have ever entertained a profound veneration for the astonishing force and vivacity of mind which the rambler exhibits that johnson had penetration enough to see and seeing would not disguise The general misery of man in this state of being may have given rise to the superficial notion of his being too stern a philosopher. But men of reflection will be sensible that he has given a true representation of human existence, and that he has, at the same time, with a generous benevolence displayed every consolation which our state affords us, not only those arising from the hopes of futurity, but such as may be obtained in the immediate progress through life. He has not depressed the soul to despondency and indifference. He has everywhere inculcated study, labor, and exertion. Nay, he has shown in a very odious light a man whose practice is to go about darkening the views of others by perpetual complaints of evil and awakening those considerations of danger and distress which are, for the most part, lulled into a quiet oblivion. This he has done very strongly in his character of Suspirius, from which Goldsmith took that of Croker in his comedy of The Good-Natured Man, as Johnson told me he acknowledged to him, and which is, indeed, very obvious. To point out the numerous subjects which the rambler treats, with the dignity and perspicuity which are there united in a manner which we shall in vain look for anywhere else, would take up too large a portion of my book, and would, I trust, be superfluous, considering how universally those volumes are now disseminated even the most condensed and brilliant sentences which they contain and which have very properly been selected under the name of beauties are of considerable bulk but i may shortly observe that the rambler furnishes such an assemblage of discourses on practical religion and moral duty of critical investigations and allegorical and oriental tales that no mind can be thought very deficient that has by constant study and meditation assimilated to itself all that may be found there Number seven written in Passion Week on abstraction and self-examination, and number one hundred and ten on penitence and the placability of the divine nature cannot be too often read. Number fifty four on the effect which the death of a friend should have upon us, though rather too dispiriting, may be occasionally very medicinal to the mind. Every one must suppose the writer to have been deeply impressed by a real scene, but he told me that was not the case which shows how well his fancy could conduct him to the House of Mourning. Some of these more solemn papers, I doubt not, particularly attracted the notice of Dr. Young, the author of The Night Thoughts, of whom my estimation is such as to reckon his applause and honor even to Johnson. I have seen some volumes of Dr. Young's copy of The Rambler, in which he has marked the passages which he thought particularly excellent by folding down a corner of the page. And such as he rated in a supereminent degree are marked by double folds. I am sorry that some of the volumes are lost. Johnson was pleased when told of the minute attention with which Young had signified his approbation of his essays. I will venture to say that in no writings whatever can be found more bark and steel for the mind, if I may use the expression, more that can brace and invigorate every manly and noble sentiment. Number thirty two. On patience even under extreme misery is wonderfully lofty and as much above the rant of stoicism as the sun of revelation is brighter than the twilight of pagan philosophy i never read the following sentence without feeling my frame thrill i think there is some reason for questioning whether the body and mind are not so proportioned that the one can bear all which can be inflicted on the other whether virtue cannot stand its ground as long as life and whether a soul well-principled will not be sooner separated than subdued though instruction be the predominant purpose of the rambler yet it is enlivened with a considerable portion of amusement nothing could be more erroneous than the notion which some persons have entertained that johnson was then a retired author ignorant of the world and of consequence that he wrote only from his imagination when he described characters manners he said to me that before he wrote that work he had been running about the world as he expressed it more than almost anybody and i have heard him relate with much satisfaction that several of the characters in the rambler are drawn so naturally that when it first circulated in numbers a club in one of the towns of essex imagined themselves to be severally exhibited in it and were much incensed against a person who they suspected had thus made them objects of public notice Nor were they quieted till authentic assurance was given them that the Rambler was written by a person who had never heard of any one of them. Some of the characters are believed to have been actually drawn from life, particularly that of Prospero, from Garrick, who never entirely forgave its pointed satire. For instances of fertility of fancy and accurate description of real life, I appeal to number 19, a man who wanders from one profession to another with most plausible reasons for every change. Number thirty four. Female fastidiousness and timorous refinement. Number eighty two. A virtuoso who has collected curiosities. Number eighty eight. Petty modes of entertaining a company and conciliating kindness. Number one eighty two. Fortune hunting. Numbers one ninety four to one ninety five. A tutor's account of the follies of his pupil. Numbers 197 to 198, Legacy Hunting. He has given a specimen of his nice observation of the mere external appearances of life in the following passage in number 179, Against Affectation, that frequent and most disgusting quality. He that stands to contemplate the crowds that fill the streets of a populous city will see many passengers whose air and motion it will be difficult to behold without contempt and laughter. But if he examine what are the appearances that thus powerfully excite his risibility, he will find among them neither poverty nor disease, nor any involuntary or painful defect. The disposition to derision and insult is awakened by the softness of foppery, the swell of insolence, the liveliness of levity, or the solemnity of grandeur, by the sprightly trip, the stately stock, the formal strut and the lofty mien, by gestures intended to catch the eye and by looks elaborately formed as evidence of importance. Every page of the Rambler shows a mind teeming with classical allusion and poetical imagery. The illustrations from other writers are, upon all occasions, so ready and mingle so easily in his periods that the whole appears of one uniform vivid texture. The style of this work has been censored by some shallow critics, as involved and turgid, and bounding with antiquated and hard words. So ill-founded is the first part of this objection, that I will challenge all who may honor this book with a perusal, to point out any English writer whose language conveys his meaning with equal force and perspicuity. It must indeed be allowed that the structure of his sentences is expanded, and often has somewhat of the inversion of latin and that he delighted to express familiar thoughts in philosophical language being in this the reverse of socrates who it was said reduced philosophy to the simplicity of common life but let us attend to what he himself says in his concluding paper when common words were less pleasing to the ear or less distinct in their signification i have familiarized the terms of philosophy by applying them to popular ideas. And as to the second part of this objection, upon a late careful revision of the work, I can with confidence say that it is amazing how few of those words, for which it has been unjustly characterized, are actually to be found in it. I am sure not the proportion of one to each paper. This idle charge has been echoed from one babbler to another, who have confounded Johnson's essays with Johnson's dictionary and because he thought it right in a lexicon of our language to collect many words which had fallen into disuse, but were supported by great authorities, it has been imagined that all of these have been interwoven into his own compositions. That some of them have been adopted by him unnecessarily may, perhaps, be allowed, but, in general, they are evidently an advantage, for without them his stately ideas would be confined and cramped. "'He that thinks with more extent than another "'will want words of larger meaning. "'He once told me that he had formed his style "'upon that of Sir William Temple, "'and upon Chambers's proposal for his dictionary. "'He certainly was mistaken, "'or, if he imagined at first that he was imitating Temple, "'he was very unsuccessful, "'for nothing can be more unlike than the simplicity of Temple "'and the richness of Johnson. "'Their styles differ as plain cloth and brocade.' Temple, indeed, seems equally erroneous in supposing that he himself had formed his style upon Sandys's view of the state of religion in the western parts of the world. End of section 15